I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode I'm joined by 80s pop sensation Tracy, aka the fabulous Tracy Young. From answering an ad in Smash Hits to auditioning for Paul Weller's Respond record label, to beat Surrender with The Jam, to Top of the Pops, to Speak Like a Child with The Style Council, and solo Top 40 hits, The House That Jack Built. Give it some emotion. Who can forget that absolute corker? We're going to chat about her solo career, touring and recording with Paul Weller, along with the truth behind that second album that remained unreleased for over 25 years. We'll chat about the Respond record label. We'll hear about the highs and lows of a pop career from Tracy and what she's been up to since. Plus, plenty of questions from you, the fans, for me to include as well. So let's get into it. My very, very special guest, Tracy Young. You're welcome. I love the fact you've had your hair done, especially for the podcast, which is always nice to see. Good. I had more than half of it cut off since the first time we met, uh, which is a shame because this is not visual and the last time was. <laughs> yeah, no, looking good, looking good. Although not as impressive as your hair looked in the 80s, I have to say. Yeah, I did go through some hair styles and colours yeah. in the 80s. You know what? It's a funny thing. So when I first met Paul, here you go, I don't think I've ever told this story before. When I first met Paul, I had just had all my hair cut. I had very, very long hair. I used to wear it Farrah style as we all did in the 80s. Lots of tonguing and flicked out. But I just had it cut because my hair is naturally very dark. I had all these blonde highlights put in it. And then you keep doing that, keep having the highlight roots done. You end up blonde eventually, of course. Hence, I ended up with that look. The day that I dyed it back and had it cut into a bulb and I dyed it back to my natural, very dark brown. And I walked into Solid Bond with a new haircut and a completely different colour. And Nikki was in reception. And I just breezed through and went straight down to the studio and Nikki was like, excuse me, excuse me, you can't just go down there. Yeah. And I'm like, hello, it's me. <laughs> Love it. And I think actually my hair right now looks very similar to it did that day, a little bit longer, but yeah, dark, 
sort of bob and she hadn't got a clue who i was because nobody had ever seen me with my natural colored hair then that's so funny when i first moved to london i ended up having my hair chemically straightened and it was a bit of a paul weller look it was a bit to try hard to say the least and spent about six hours getting it chemically straightened and went to work the next day and i was stood next to my boss for a meeting and he had no idea who it was and apparently he said to his <laughs> pa afterwards he's like who's the new guy <laughs> he had no idea it was me <laughs> we all went through some some torture in the 80s i think with our hair and did you know absolutely I was young. It was a time to experiment. Okay, let's kick off. And to do that, I think we should head right back to the beginning. So tell me about where your love of music first came from. Well, I got given my first record player when I was six. My mum gave me one of those. It wasn't a dance set, but that type, you know, the little fold up suitcase record player for my sixth birthday. And she gave me two KTEL, maybe you're too young to have No, no, I remember. Yeah. Compilation. Yeah, yeah. So those compilations that were really big in the um, 70s and 80s, long before now came along. She gave me two of those. And then that was it. I was always cadging old 45s off grandparents and what have you. I just loved music, probably more than my mum did. I don't remember my mum being particularly a big influence on me with the music. But hey, something about me said to her, record player for your sixth birthday. So yeah, that was quite a big thing. And so music was always big in my life. Going to college, we were like a lot of teenagers. I remember us on the bus. We always had a little tape recorder. We were always up on the top deck playing music, trying to influence other kids with what we were listening to. Same at school. Music was very important at school and kids are really trying to influence each other or outdo each other with their coolness. Every time my bedroom was redecorated, it was always around what record player I'd got and where that was going to go and where the speakers were going to go. So I don't know. It just always was a big part of my life. And did you used to Uh, sing along with the songs? Were you singing along to the record player? Was that something you enjoyed? All the time. All the time. And you know what? this isn't cool well for me it's cool but it wouldn't have been considered cool then I'm saying cool in air quotes by the way I actually improved my range my range was pretty good when I was younger and I actually taught myself to do that by singing along to two Barbra Streisand albums that my mum had one was called Songbird and the other one was the soundtrack to A Star Is Born I loved both those albums and I used to sing along to them all the time and when I first started singing I couldn't reach all the notes but I would just keep singing and singing until I could get every single note without a conscious thought in my head of I want to be a singer it wasn't like that it was just I enjoy singing and I want to be able to hit every note when I'm singing along nice okay and obviously this is the Paul Weller fan podcast so when would it have been that you were first aware of the music of Mr Weller and obviously it would have been the jam but were you a fan of the jam or were you just aware of their existence I wasn't a fan per se there were some songs that I really liked jams but I hung out with a lot of people who were big big fans a lot of my friends were mods or were just into the jam. So he was always in my orbit, as it were. (laughs) And I didn't really have strong feelings about him one way or the other. I like this song. I like that song. Didn't like this one. Didn't really have albums apart from All Mod Cons, which I didn't buy on release. I bought it later. I remember buying it on a day out in London, but it wasn't at the time it was released. And Sound Effects, which I did buy when it was released. They were the only two jam albums I had. And I had Strange Town. I think that was the only single. But going underground, I remember being at school everybody that brought a packed lunch we had a room all these years later I remember it was B16 B16 was the room that all the people I know it well I know it well it's it's mad isn't it I couldn't tell you what I did yesterday morning (laughs) B16 was the room where we had lunch so I remember being in there and somebody always had the radio on and the chart was Tuesday lunchtime then so Tuesday was a big day for us all hanging out in there and there'd been all this buzz not just amongst school kids 
but on the news as well about the jam about to go straight in at number one, which was so rare back then, mm. so rare. And I can remember listening to the radio with all these other kids when it was announced that Tuesday lunchtime that it had which we all knew, but it had done it, gone to it straight in at number one. And I liked the song, so I was happy, but there was nothing compared to the atmosphere around me. It was like New Year's Eve. Things being thrown in the air, the <laughs> oh, really? cheering. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Well, that crazy. must have blown their mind what happened uh, you know, very soon after. That must have absolutely blown their mind. So let's dig into these stories. because I, was, I saw the other day, I found it finally, the um, Situations Vacant, the ad in Smash Hits magazine. Paul Weller's Respond label, they're still looking for a female singer to record. Paul would like to stress that you don't have to be a 60s maniac to qualify. All you need is a strong uh, voice and good technique, send a cassette, and then various other bits and bobs with the address and stuff. Was that the ad that you saw in Smash Hits magazine? That, to me, sounds like the second time oh, he put okay. it in. Because he put it in twice. The first time I saw it, and I really, really wanted to do it, but I didn't because I was only 17, so I didn't. And then the second time which was either two weeks or four weeks later because Smash Hits was fortnightly. So I'm, I'm guessing it was probably about four weeks later. Yeah, I thought, well, if he hasn't found anybody, what, what have I got to lose? So that, yeah, that's when I sent the tape in. That's funny, isn't it? The, the second ad being so open, just being like, yeah, either nobody's sent any cassettes or I've not found what I'm looking for. And yeah. you know, obviously he's a huge name. So the fact that, the, um, I mean, Respond was this new record label that Paul was setting up. His version of Motown is how I've kind of read about it. It was actually already set up by them. It right. was already going. Yeah, it, because the first ad, I think, mentioned the questions and how they were on the label. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I, I think yeah. It, it was already set up because the Dolly Mixtures were Dolly on the mixtures, label yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the questions were already signed. So I think think he was looking for a female artist he had a female group he had a, a male group or girl group and boy band as we'd call them these days <laughs> but he had those and he wanted a solo artist so yeah so you see the ad in smash it's magazine you grab the cassette deck and pluck up the courage to sing into it uh, well, take me through that journey yeah uh, well I, I don't remember if i'm honest i don't remember if i did it the first time and just didn't send it and just kept the tape all that time or if i just didn't bother and it wasn't until the second time that i actually recorded it so my mum had recently moved i'd just left essex i was feeling a bit like cut adrift because my mum got divorced and moved back to her hometown of hereford and i was 17 feeling really kind of like i didn't belong i'd had to leave behind everything that i'd grown up with and i just didn't feel like i, I had any direction whatsoever and i'd just before i left in the few months before i left i'd started to put out feelers about joining bands i'd had a brief very brief flirtation with a, a synth band uh, from basildon which didn't really pan out. Yeah, when, when this ad appeared, either the first or second time, my mum had one of those um, music centres, but you could actually record straight into the built-in mic. You didn't have to set up a mic or anything. So I thought, oh, what can I sing? What can I sing? And one of the songs I've been singing along to a lot at the time and felt really good about singing was from a Phoebe Snow album called Rockaway. There were a few covers quite a few covers on that album one of which was Shira Shira the Betty Wright song so um, yeah and I've been singing along to it such a lot I just did that and that was literally the only song it was one song and I just recorded it completely a cappella, no background, nothing, just in my mum's living room into the music centre. But that'll do. <laughs> Put it in my bag. And there it stayed. <laughs> there it stayed for quite a while. Eventually you pluck up the courage to put it in the post box. I did because I'd come up from Hereford or come across, down, whatever, from Hereford to a Q-Tips gig at the venue in Victoria. So I was just in a, this great mood. I was seeing one of my favourite bands. I was with... 
an old school friend who I hadn't seen for a couple of months and I just came out on a high and stuck it in the first post box that I saw as we left the venue. <laughs> yeah, just on a buzz. It could have, you know, it was already addressed, but it had been sat in my bag, certainly for days, but I can't remember if it had been there for weeks, as in the first advert. I genuinely don't remember if I recorded it after the first ad or the second. Right. And it's, and it's a pretty quick roller coaster from there to, I mean, from there to top of the pops, really, if you think about it. We're talking like a very short period of time before you get a phone call from, was it Jill Price who rang you, Paul's girlfriend at the time? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what, you have to go yeah, in for an audition, all, do you? Yeah. It was all really fast. And at the time, people asked me and they still ask me now, was it all crazy? You just don't process it like that at the time. You know, you meet someone who's really famous, you you get over that very quickly because you're working with that person. And so very quickly, they, they become not a stranger, not a famous person, just somebody you're working with. And yeah, it all snowballed very fast. So there was the audition, went to London, did that, bashed out some tunes. Uh, Pete Wilson was there. He played some tunes at the piano. Me and Paul had a little sing song. From there, it was, okay, here's a song, The House That Jack Built. Go away and learn it. I'll be in touch. I don't think there was ever a moment where he said, yes, <laughs> you, you're the one. It was just a rolling conversation that never ended, you know? I don't remember how the communication happened. Because in, in your head, when you tell stories like this these days, you automatically transpose modern media into it. So I'm like, yeah, he phoned me or I phoned him. And I'm like, no, we couldn't have done. Nobody had mobile phones in yeah, those days. Yeah. I don't remember how we kept in touch, but we did somehow. I remember him sending me a, a tape in the post I remember calling him when I heard that the jam had split because I wanted to know how that affected me. It didn't. He said, no, everything stays the same, but I am going to send you another song. <laughs> so he sent me a solid bond in your heart, a cassette, and said, I want you to learn some harmonies, practice them, come up with some ideas for backing vocals. And then later contacted me to say, that is going to be our last single and I want you to sing on it because I think it would be really good. People will wonder who you are. They'll see you on top of the pops. They'll say, who is this girl? He said, so it will create a bit of a buzz. I set about learning bits and pieces, which I loved. Only to then, about a week before, have the rug pulled out from under me when he... Don't forget, all of this happened between September and November. So it's a really short space of time mm. from meeting him to going to Air Studios to record Beat Surrender. So yeah, but a week before that he sends me another tape calls me I don't remember it's not going to be that song now it's going to be this one which I didn't love as much it wasn't as instant I do love it I do love Big Surrender but it wasn't that instant as soon as I heard it yeah I love this and he said you haven't got to do all the backing vocals we've got um, some other girls doing some other parts which was aphrodisiac he said but I want you to do these parts and then yeah the next thing I knew I'm at Air Studios it was a Sunday morning typical November December Sunday we recorded the song it was very weird it was the first time that I met Bruce and Rick and yeah it was yeah so just Man. it is strange but it, <laughs> yeah talking about it now seems strange and at the time obviously I would have been a little uncomfortable or a little bit nervous but not in the way that people imagine because you just do it you just yeah. get on with it so first day at a job by the end of the week you're not walking around questioning it all the time you're just doing it that's how it works yeah and that jam performing on top of the pops was that you with the jam on top of the pops singing with them that was indeed me yeah i thought so because <laughs> you, the... you're in the back and it's a bit fuzzy because of obviously the quality of the tv i was watching on youtube i was like yeah, i think that is tracy that is me um, i mean that's mad like straight into top of the pops <laughs> yeah 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 and he's in the background for once which which wasn't always the case with yeah. the jam. Um, me and him at the back i think rick was at the front is on tv all the time people are constantly sending me <laughs> 
links on Facebook going, you were on TV tonight. <laughs> I don't watch them all. But yeah, I think me and Paul were at the back. We did a little rehearsal where he said, you know, I want us to do a little dance, you know, and I went, oh, I'm not much of a dancer. He was like, no, me neither. But I want us to do a little dance. He said, so, you know, if we just kind of really just be in sync with each other and said, you go for it. And I'll, he always used to, that was his favorite thing. You do it and I'll follow. Yeah. Didn't take me long to suss that that wasn't true. But yeah, he, so he wanted to do that. And he was very interested in styling me at that time as well. So he wanted me to wear ski pants, which was something I already wore anyway. And then he got it in his head that there was a lot of ski wear in CNA at the time. Oh, everywhere's got ski jumpers. We go to CNA. They're really good. So we went to CNA, me and Paul, and bought this ski jumper, the one that I wore. But I had goggles. <laughs> And he wanted me to wear the ski goggles as well. And I was like, are you taking the piss? I didn't know him very well, obviously. And I was only 17, but I was quite bobby. I had a lot more confidence. Seriously, are you taking the piss? He went, it'd be really funny. People would be talking about it. It'd be great. I'm like, but you want you want a buzz because we're going to do something else after. And you want people to know who I am or to ask questions. I said, do you really want them to be asking who's the nutty bird with ski goggles on? Is that is that really the buzz that you want to create? It'll be hilarious. I'm like, yeah, for you, not for me. <laughs> it won't be funny for me. So he wanted me to wear them around my neck. Do you know, to this day, I can't remember whether I did. I don't think I did. I don't yeah. think I did wear them. But he certainly, he wanted the compromise to be, I would wear them around my neck. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> it's you know people are all emotional the jam have split up here they are number one and in the background this big distraction is this lunatic young girl wearing ski goggles and if i'd said yes to the ski goggles knowing him as i do now he would have gone let's have some poles as well <laughs> and then it would have been actual skis but i didn't wear the goggles then i went out we were looking for ski some nice boots with not with paul that was with a friend of his lee we kind of compromised but i wasn't happy with that look i had tell you I wasn't happy it's probably the same now obviously I don't see him so often now very rarely we speak and see each other but I can't imagine he's changed he is what he is a bit of a wind up version by the sounds of things as well absolutely yeah Yeah. and and that do you know what that was one of the first things that I discovered about him that I was able to pass on to all my friends who were these massive fans and like he's actually a lot funnier and a lot more mischievous than you might think because I had been very much under the impression that he was a bit of a misery guts before that very serious and actually quite a negative down sort of person who was just angry about everything he's not he's really yeah, not yeah. very funny yeah well that humor comes through in the band the style council and we'll talk about how your world's intertwined between that band and, and you immediately going on tour as well i think your first gig was like 80, january 83 was it banana rama and the questions you're on can you remember that was a thing at the drill hall so that probably was about january yeah i don't remember the exact date but it was certainly before the house that Jack built. Now you would think most young singer-songwriters or young singers get coached with, like, within an inch of their life in terms of TV yeah. and radio and the media training and what to say, what uh, how to act, all mm. that kind of thing. Did you get any of that from Paul at all? Did you get any no. from John? What, what type of advice did you get? Because you're straight in the limelight. You're straight in the you know top 10 of the charts. You're on things like the Tube, it being interviewed by Jules Holland, which is fabulous. Top of the Pops, all those kind of things must be... A, terrifying, I thought, for any youngster. Um, what kind of advice do you get from the, the Weller family or the crew or the Nothing. record label? 
Bugger Nothing. <laughs> nothing. So it just didn't happen. Whether it happened for other artists, I don't know, but it certainly didn't happen for me. It was partly naivety, partly just because I was always very open with people, would let people get very close to me, quite often put my foot in it and say things because I didn't realise they would go into print or that they would be used out of context. You know, the only time things got into print that I felt misrepresented me were a couple of occasions where I mistakenly thought that the journalist and I were friends and I learned the hard way that they're doing a job. One of them didn't mean to, to be fair. It was an accident. And that was when I <laughs> got that Smash Hits award. He didn't do it on purpose. I can't remember his name now. It was Peter something. But we had hung out socially. And I don't think he deliberately stitched me up. The other one did, which was mis- a bit of a misfortune for me. The Smash Hits award was the most fanciable female. Is that, that that one? Yeah, yeah. And so because I knew the guy and, and I didn't even know there was you know, smash hits awards were a thing. He just caught me off guard and I made a load of flippant comments because I thought he was winding me up. I thought it was a joke. But unfortunately, even after I realised it wasn't a joke, it was the things I'd said in the 10 minutes preceding that that made it into print. But hey-ho, it just made me sound like a very, very ungracious winner. To do myself justice, I've always been a kind person and a nice person. But as a 17, 18-year-old, you can often being naive about how things come across so that media training would have been very very useful and how does it feel going into like news agents and seeing your face on the cover your face on the cover of smash it says there was an enemy cover where it's like the girl star paul weller would build do you know i really don't remember because i used to buy all the music papers all the time literally all of them apart from kerrang i don't think anybody buys kerrang do they? <laughs> i don't even know if kerrang was a thing then but i used to get smash hits every fortnight and then weekly enemy record mirror and sound Melody Maker as well. Yeah, I used to buy them all. This was back when Record Mirror was still a paper. I just used to love it. I used to love all the pages that just had bits on. I, yeah, and that, don't forget, is how you used to find out about bands being on tour, tickets going on sale. That's how it happened then. Now, we should talk about the first singles. Um, so the house that Jack built and give it some emotion. I've got this here. Where are we? A reminder for you. There was these things on there. I mean, I love the singles just for a start, but there was these things on there as well where it would be Tracy raps. And you would expect this to be Tracy giving it the old vanilla ice or something. But this was you being interviewed by Paul Weller. It was some, I, I don't remember how it came about, but obviously it was Paul's idea, obviously. <laughs> and they're very silly. That Of the minute and a half or whatever they last, I reckon there's about 15 seconds of good stuff in there that's actually <laughs> funny. Because I didn't know him, especially the first one, I really didn't know him well enough to respond to his humour and what he wanted back. But yeah, they weren't edited. They were just as the banter happened, you know. It's a funny very thing, silly. isn't it? Because usually you, you, you think like of a single, being like repeat listen you know you're cane that seven inch that 12 inch whatever but the the yeah. interview i always find strange on a single because it's not something you'll listen to over and over again is it but it's not even a proper interview no, no. Yeah. pulls in some kind of character i don't he's got some vaguely northern accent i don't know who is he supposed to be i don't know i think he just didn't want anyone to know it was him but at that point he was very much in control of everything and you mentioned you were pretty feisty at the time i, I gather there were a few clashes it's fair to say would that be right mm, there was one big one which everybody kind of knows about now which was when I walked in and heard what he'd done to give it some emotion and he's absolutely no secret amongst this crowd <laughs> that I really hated it I absolutely hated what he'd done to it I had no idea when I turned up at the record the first recording session that he was already going to have spent so much time on the backing track so when I turned up that morning I thought starting from scratch and that I was going to have total input uh, not to be I turned up and he'd already laid down most of the backing track with this awful 
drum machine track that I hated. I had chosen a bunch of demos by Chris Free and Lissy Barron, A Craze. This one song, I just, it just really spoke to me and I loved it. The lyrics were weird and dark and sadistic almost, but the tune was so light and breezy and the jangly guitar was just lovely. I loved it. it wasn't something that I would ever have imagined myself doing. Don't forget, I was somebody who I saw myself as a real soul girl. And then to walk into the studio and find that it had been, for want of a better word, butchered. I absolutely hated it. I was really, really upset. Absolutely hated it. I can't, I cannot give enough emphasis to the loathing I had for what I heard when he played it to me that morning. That was a bit explosive. That was the day of the infamous looking in the toilet by mistake. Yeah, I wasn't happy. We did have other clashes about songs. Souls on Fire was a single for the most stupid of reasons. It was a ridiculous reason. We had the album recorded at that stage. I wanted to release Far From The Hurting Kind. For me, Far From The Hurting Kind is still the hit single I never had. I will stand by that to the day I die. In my gut, I knew it. I knew it, it was perfect after the first two singles. And Paul said, and I, this is pretty much verbatim, I don't want you to get labelled as a little soul girl. I said, I'm really happy with that. Like That would be fine. This is me. This is what I want to do. This song embodies what I want to do. So I've kind of done what you wanted me to do. Can I? No. But, but it's on the album. And you wrote it. Why is it okay on the album, but not as... Anyway, we just kind of went round in circles. And I, yeah, I was very unhappy. So then he wanted to release Nothing Happens Here But You. And then we just got into this silly, silly thing of me just putting my foot down because he'd put his foot down at my choice. So I was obstinate. I didn't want Nothing Happens to be the single, but I was fighting back because I felt hard done by. So we ended up compromising on Souls on Fire, which, to be honest, was a stupid choice. Apart from anything else, it was about six and a half minutes long, and it sounds great as a six and a half minute piece, but it didn't sound so great as a three and a half minute piece. The interesting thing, when the debut album comes out, and I've got it here, there you go, there you are. None of the singles are on it, and I know this was a bit of a pull. It wasn't just Paul, actually. This, I think this comes back to somebody else mentioned on the podcast. It kind of goes back to the Beatles in a way, doesn't it? it was, yeah, and, yeah. and Mick Talbot talks about it with the style Council. So like they were constantly wanting to add value. So they'd release these singles that weren't on albums and, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But it does seem mad when you're kind of trying to launch an artist that the two songs that have been out aren't on that WLP. And Paul did speak to me about that because, again, we argued, not viciously, <laughs> about it. But, you know, that wasn't an aggressive argument. It was just a conversation about why. And he said that exact thing. In the 60s, singles were separate. There was the album and then there were singles and you could buy both because they were different. Everything was value for money. And I said, I, I get that and I get why you can do it as you with the Style Council, but nobody knows me. Yeah, there's been this hit single and then there was this hit single that both of which were quite a way apart by the time this album comes out the first single was a year old it's been a year unless we get another hit single before then this isn't the 60s you know things are different but he wasn't having it there you go how much of that album do you feel is the sound of you and what you were looking for because I have to say when it opens and you've got the uh, the track um, I Love You When You Sleep which is Elvis Costello written right and you'll have to tell me about mm. how that came about but I think that's a beautiful track I think that's lovely and that's to me sounds mm. like what I feel like 
like you're saying that you'd like to have sounded like. And, and songs like Spring, Summer, Autumn is another one which really stands out on that LP. How much of that felt right to you and you, uh, you were really happy with? Most of it was not a direction I'd ever seen myself going in. You know, as that soul fan singing in her bedroom, extending her range to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> the Q-Tips was the band that I used to go and see the most. Dexys was another of my big faves. So you can kind of imagine the sound that I saw myself embracing. So most of that album was not a place I saw myself going. However, Spring, Summer, Autumn is one of my all-time favourite recordings of all the things I've ever done. It just felt perfectly for me that the vocal just came out of me in a way that I really liked the sound of because I was feeling it. I really felt it as I sung it. So, yeah, I loved that. If I'm honest, a lot of them were just fillers. They were songs that I chose out of the limited selection of tracks that were made available to me to choose from. Again, towards the end of my career, I did start doing little workshops with people, but that was never really offered to me before. I know I didn't have the confidence to take ideas and say, I've got a bit of a song. I've got this bit and I've got that bit and some words and a melody there, but not here. You know, I never had the confidence to go to Paul and say, who's going to help me finesse this? Who's going to help me work on it? That didn't happen for a year or two. So the songs that went on that first album, a lot of them were fillers. Some of them came out of the fact that I was shoved on tour very quickly as well. Now, I only had to do a half hour set because it was part of a package tour, but we tried some songs out on that tour. There was no time. There wasn't the time and there wasn't this huge pool of songs to choose from. And if you think about it, Paul's whole idea with Respond was to have like a Motown environment where you had a house band, you had house writers, you had the singers. You know, the artists weren't expected to write their own songs or play their own instruments because there was a band and there were writers. The plan was good, but there wasn't enough to fill the pool. So I wasn't really a big fan of Can't Hold On Till It's Summer. Never really had a warmth for that song. Thank You was my choice because it was a song written by General Johnson that was on a Martha Reeves album that she'd issued in the 80s, which I found in a 50p bucket in some shop off the back of Oxford Street somewhere. Dr. Love was another one. Kind of a a filler, really, because Dr. Love was the original B-side to the house that Jack built, the seven inch, which is good fun. And it was huge fun to do on tour. So it's really camp and kitschy and, you know, it's no masterpiece, but it is a good one to do on tour and to do live. We used to have such a laugh. Me and Vaughan, when we used to do that together, it was just so much fun. It got camper and the woos got louder and louder with every tour. <laughs> but it was fun. The audience liked it. And actually, yeah, it was it was quite a nice, fun thing to do. But you don't, you don't want a whole album of things that you think, that might be fun to do live. You were flung into the uh, live scenario pretty quickly as well like you said earlier you were overseas you were part of the European tour with the Style Council so when the Style Council formed Paul takes them immediately to Europe and you were part of that lineup. and the, yeah. some some gigs the Style Council would come on first and then you'd be after it it was all kind of messing and playing with the format I suppose of live performance but straight away you're doing pretty big venues at times as well aren't you I'd forgotten that yeah he used to split his set in two didn't he and we'd yeah. come on in the middle yeah 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 I forgot so yeah he was he is very experimental but that is a lot of pressure and he used to talk to me about writing but I didn't know really how to do it and as I say I never approached him about help me help Mm. me to finesse this help me to give me somebody to work with to help me turn my ideas into actual songs that I've written for myself that's how I ended up 
because I was on the road so much from the beginning, ended up doing some not such great songs, really. We worked some stuff on the road over the, the next couple of years. I Can't Leave You Alone being one. It was a song that I'd always really liked. And we took this very laid back, jangly guitar song and turned it. And on stage, it was amazing. And the first time we ever tried to record it, it just didn't sound like it did live. It sounded like people jamming in their garage. So we thought it's not going to work. But then I went on tour. I'm sorry, I've probably gone way off topic here. But when we went on tour in 1984, just as me, not with the respond package, a guy came and spoke to me afterwards at the bar or somewhere. And he told me he was Bobby Bluebell's brother. I think he said his name was Lawrence, but he said he was Bobby Bluebell's brother. Bluebell's brother. Don't want to say that too many times. <laughs> and... Um, was he the he guy in the Bluebells? Bobby Bluebell was, yeah. Yeah, so this young guy at heart was, and all that, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but this guy said he was his brother. I thought he said his name was Lawrence, but I, it's a long time ago, so I could be wrong. But he was Bobby Bluebell's brother anyway. No, it was in Glasgow, I think, this gig, so he had no reason to, to lie about that. But he was having a long conversation with me about the set, and then he said, that George McRae version you do, you have to release that as a single. He said, it is amazing. He said, that is, without a doubt, the highlight of what you have done tonight. And I explained that we tried to do it before. I said, trust me, I know. I love the song. And I know as a, a crowd pleaser, it's there. We couldn't make it work. And he said, you have to go back and try again. You have to come at it from a new approach. That is your song. That is your next hit single. So, yeah, that's why we did it again. And Brian Robson was amazing. The things he did on that song, that second version, the studio version that was eventually released as a single. Yeah, the things he did on that was incredible. So he was the producer um, and the guy who mixed the end records, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And not, I, not, yeah. not the footballer. <laughs> no, not that Brian Robson. <laughs> Brian Robson was an engineer at Solid Bond and he worked on all my stuff and then started to produce a few bits. And so Brian produced the whole of the second album with the exception of the two songs that Paul, sorry, three songs. Paul Barry produced the two songs that he wrote and John, I can't remember his surname, Meeling, but he did the whole string arrangement on the new version of Invitation. Apart from those three tracks, he did all of the production on uh, the second album and he was brilliant and he was really experimental. We used to stay up till really late. We'd work all hours. We'd come out of the studio at midnight and go and have an Indian. Uh, it was just so much fun working with him and he was really into trying sampling and technology, things that were still really new. And that's what we did with I Can't Leave You Alone. There's a lot of sampling on that of little brass parts. And of course, then when we did the B-side, he did a load of sampling, not only of live audio from the animal raid, the animal activist raid that we had a video of, a videotape, yeah. and he sampled a load of sound off it, but also sampling Souls on Fire, which was the track that we used as the basis for Wickham 19 mix. Yeah, this is a play on the uh, Paul Hardcastle song, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's funny enough, I was listening to that earlier on before this. I was, I was like, I can't have forgotten this one. Yeah. Um, now, we have to talk about the touring experience, because at such a young age, you're then going around the world, presumably. Where, where, are you, where did you off go off to? Because it wasn't just Europe, was it? No. So the first tour... I did was a promotional tour. So that was just doing TV shows and bits and pieces. So that was with Paul and Mick and me, I think. We did TV shows. Paul had had us all these suits made, the pinstripe suits. They were double-breasted. 
Paul and Mick's were obviously trouser suits, double-breasted black pinstripe suits. Mine was a skirt. The only time I ever wore it outside of that tour was on top of the pops for the house that Jack built. I wore oh. a denim jacket with the skirt from that suit. And off we went to Europe and did all this TV, including, have you seen that one with the hotel room where we're all yeah, singing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was part of that first tour. Right. And yeah. well as like Paul's mum's in that one as well, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She walk, walks in with the, I think that was completely by accident as well. She walks in with the tray of tea, bless her. <laughs> We had such a laugh, honestly. And then the singing tour started. So we got back from that. And then it was, okay, now I have a hit single. And then it was the Respond Tour. And then we did the second single. Then there's another Respond Tour. And yes, in between all of those were the European tours where I would support the Style Council and the UK tour where I supported the Style Council. Not America, but I did Japan. Yeah, we did a, a festival there. Yeah. Lots of other artists, which was in Tokyo and Osaka. So we did a couple of gigs in each, I think. I loved it. Th- those times on the bus, were really good fun as well really good fun and I think that's probably where all my really good memories of Mick come in Mick is a understated genius in terms of his humour so whereas Paul is more was always more out there and mischievous and in your face with it Mick's just uh, he comes across as uh, taciturn but he's not <laughs> well maybe he is but it works for him yeah he's great he's just lovely and seeing him the other way it's the first time I've seen him in properly in years I think I ran into him at Radio 2 easily 15, 16 years ago and that was very brief and then he messaged me last year but that's the first time I've spent any time with him in a long time and yeah he's great he always was great Tell me about Amsterdam with you and Dee what happened in Amsterdam can you remember? Why are you asking about that? <laughs> well unless there's something that your face tells me maybe I've got a different story but didn't you get No given... <laughs> it's just like, did I mention this to you? Did no, I mention it? I, I read about it I can't remember where it was probably in Ian Munn's book um, Oh okay Mystical's right. no, Dream but brilliant. yeah t- Tell me about, tell me the story about you and Dean in Amsterdam. So me and Dee were sharing a room. We, we, didn't always share a room. Sometimes I shared a room with Helen. Uh, but on this occasion, I was sharing a room with Dee. We didn't have a gig that day. I believe there was press conference the next day. Or it might have been that night, but I don't think it was that night. Anyway, in the morning, I can't remember why. John gave us 100 quid each. And that was in pounds, not, not gilders or gliders, as we used to call them, pre-euro. Actually gave us £100 and said, here you are, girls, go. Go, go out and get yourself something pretty. <laughs> right. And it was just, um, I'm not saying me and Dee were rampant feminists or anything ahead of our time, but we just thought it was hilarious that John had said this to us. You know, go out and buy yourself something pretty. Like we're there on tour. We've kind of got everything we need, you know, to be pretty. So we went out and we bought two, we found these two hideous plastic hair slides, one each. That was our something pretty. And then we had lunch. I think we had two bottles of wine at lunch. And then we came back to the hotel room and spent the rest of it on champagne on room service. <laughs> we were absolutely trollied. But we had our something pretty to show John that we bought the next day. Uh, it seemed a lot more impish and, and minxy at the time. We were quite drunk, so it would, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you're all really young. It's like kids on tours. A lot of people have talked about those style council tours and being like a youth club. People like Kenny Wheeler having to kind of you know look after you and, and keep it all in order, you know? Yeah, we were. We were. I mean, I was just turned 18 the very first time that I went on one of those tours. So in all the time, I don't think I'd even 
even reach my 20s throughout most of it. It was bizarre. But that's what being young's about. You know? well, yeah. But the worst thing is, of course, Paul didn't drink in those days. Paul was in one of his teetotal phases. So I'd never known him to have a drink. I, I, honestly, it was hilarious years later when there were some stories and things in the paper showing him absolutely bladdered, like out in the street, caught by the press. That thing. And I'm like, no way. If I had two glasses of wine, I got that kind of the judgmental looks, you know. Now we should touch on um, the Elvis Costello link. We, I said okay, we'll come back to that. Opening track on the album. This wasn't an introduction through Mr. Weller, was it? No, no. I did the tube a couple of times and I don't remember whether it was the first or second time, but either way, he sat behind me on the plane on the way back and I'd never met him before. Didn't meet him on the show and he suddenly leaned through the seats and handed me something and he went, here, have a drink on me. And he handed me a tea bag. <laughs> It's <laughs> probably an old and corny joke, but I, I <laughs> heard good. it. No I like that. <laughs> no one had done it on me before then anyway so I sort of looked at it and looked a bit puzzled and I was like oh right okay and he went come back and have a chat when we've taken off so I went and sat with him and he was talking to me about what I wanted to do what kind of music blah 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 and he said you know if I had a song for you would you be interested absolutely definitely he said I'm quite reticent he said about giving people songs he said because I don't want them then to make a big deal out of it's an Elvis Costello song and use that he said just make it your own and do what you want to do with it which I understood so pre-mobile phone days, maybe it would have been better this in this day and age if I'd been able to make direct contact with him. But that wasn't how it happened then. So he sent the song, blah, blah, blah. It came through Paul. We couldn't make it work at first. We were in uh, the studio rehearsing it and I was really struggling to get a handle on how to do this song. I couldn't find the right rhythm, so we couldn't get the right arrangement. So I went to Paul and said, you know, I'm struggling with it. Leave it with me. I'll, I'll phone Elvis. I'll speak to him, which he did. Again, very awkward not having direct contact with the, the person themselves. And the message came back, try it with a bossa nova rhythm, which is sort of what we did. That was the starting point for how it ended up. But later, when it was chosen to be a single, I think he was really, really pissed off that so much was made of it being an Elvis Costello track. And I remember him saying to me on the plane, he didn't like that. I performed it live on TV several times and, and it, it sound always sounded good. It's hard. It's really hard to sing, especially if you come off the back of something that's a, a lot more up-tempo. It's very, very hard. But when when you nail it in and it's perfect, it sounds so good and it feels like such an accomplishment to have delivered it properly, you know? Now, you mentioned the second album, so I'd love to dig into this because we did finally hear it after, what, 25 plus years? Um, so I'd love to hear about the story of that, the making of that, and, and why it didn't get released at the time. And it seems to be linked, I'm guessing, with the Respond record label coming to an end as well. So talk me through the timeline of that. So the distribution deal with A&M ended. So that's who had originally distributed The House That Jack Built and other singles around that time. That ended. And then Paul got the Polydor on board. I had already started recording songs for the second album because I believe I Can't Leave You Alone was a respond release some way into the recording of the second album or just before we sat down to do the sessions properly. That was when Paul decided to no longer continue. So there was a distribution deal with Polydor in place and then Paul decided to not continue. Now, again, I'm surmising here. Right? Things were said at the time, which led me to believe that Polydor actually weren't that into it, but did it because Paul was one of their biggest tickets. And so they would kind of acquiesce to his demands, as it were. And I believe that one of his demands for staying with them was to take on Tracy, as it had been. Or John negotiated that. I think it was, as I say, to acquiesce to 
people. I don't think they really wanted me, if I'm honest. It then became even harder, if that's possible, for me to release what I wanted to release. Hence, Call Me became a single. I didn't want that. It was a five and a half minute recording. It was always meant to be an album track and it did not work to to chop it out. It's it's a track that builds and builds and bu- it's got real momentum and a proper crescendo. Yeah, it just didn't work to chop it to pieces and make it a single. And how did it feel to to do that work and have that? Because that album was in the can, wasn't it? And then didn't yeah. see the light of day until years later, which you made happen. But that must well, have been yeah. crazy, wasn't it? What didn't help, and I'm not saying it was how big a factor it was, but it was a factor. I think it was just the excuse they were looking for to drop me because I don't think they ever really wanted me. But what didn't help was the 19, the Wiccan mix, the actual recording and the sleeve notes. So I was kind of kept out of the loop a little bit as to how much legal action was taken. But I gather that Paul Hardcastle himself objected to the parody, I suppose is the right word for it of 19 and claim some sort of copyright infringement but worse than that with sleeve notes on the back about what the subject matter of the song was so again my understanding is and i don't know this for a fact but i know there was some legal action because the sleeve notes were deemed to be libelous Uh, they were written by a law student who had a connection to the incident and they were proofread by him and checked obviously not well enough and i think the resulting settlements that had to be made to one or both parties, if such settlements existed, were just the reason that Polydor needed not to renew my contract and not to release the album. I don't think they ever really wanted me. It was all about keeping Paul Sweet, really. They were quite um, active with I Can't Leave You Alone. They were pretty good with that, actually. But that was when I was not directly signed to them. That was when I was still on Respond and they were doing the distribution. They were pretty good, pretty proactive. But once I became directly signed, they just kind of took the lead. We'll go with the Paul Weller song. Oh, that hasn't worked out. Oh, well, you know, let's call it a day then. Oh, and look, she's getting us into trouble as well. Been her off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. How did it get to the point where that album saw the light of day then? That was you making that happen, was it, with Cherry Red? Yeah, so I did the, um, the gig with Billy Franks in 2008 or 2009, I don't remember, and uh, had no thought whatsoever of any recordings or releases coming off the back of that then Cherry Red got in touch and said we would like to re-release your first album on CD would you be interested so yeah I said yeah and they were just going to do a five-year deal based on the one album and then I said while we're talking about it there is another album you know that never got released are you only interested in re-releases or would that be something that would be interesting to you and yeah they went for it they were they loved it. So then it took a lot of people. If I'd had more time, we could have done so much more with it. It took, uh, I, and I want to give big credit to Alan Jacobs, a friend of mine who used to work at EMI Publishing and had always been a really, really good friend to me and really involved and proactive. You know, he was one of the people who, you know, a year or two on said, let me hook you up with people you can workshop your songs with. And, you know, so it, Alan's great. He really helped with digging out all the tapes for that second album and things that we might use as extras, bonus tracks. Uh, he was great. If we'd had more time and the more money to finance the facilities we could have dug out an awful lot more tapes there's stuff still that's much better quality than even stuff that i did put on those cherry red releases but they're all in a vault somewhere and we don't know how they're labeled finding things that were labeled the way i remember them was really hard things have been taken out and used so I own the rights to all of that stuff. Paul sold it to me for a pound, I might add, <laughs> way back. 
I would say about 20 years ago. He sold them all to me for a pound. He let me just type up an agreement and he signed it and sent it back. So I own it all and it cost me a quid. However, he had also released things and used the tapes prior to that or in the overlapping period, say in Japan. And so things weren't where I thought they would be. Things weren't labeled as I thought they would be. So we were reliant upon kind of what was readily available and what could be easily identified on the, we're talking about quarter inch tapes from the labels that were on them, just pencil writing. We couldn't afford to take everything out. It all has to be baked and go through a whole process. We just didn't have the finance, the resources, the facilities to do that. But it's a shame because there's a lot of good stuff. There's loads of songs that I can remember demoing that would actually have made better extras than some of the stuff that we recorded, uh, that we released rather, but I just couldn't find it. I recorded demos from two songs Nick Hayward gave me. There was a great song, can't remember who wrote it now, but Ruby Turner had done the demo originally called Overdose of Love, which I did a great demo of. The original version that we recorded of I Can't Leave You Alone from the very first demo to, you know, what we tried to do as a single the first time that we wrote off because it sounded like somebody jamming in a garage. But as an extra, it would have sounded terrific. You know, it was so good. So much more like the George McRae version than that version that we really so there's loads of good stuff in the vaults but as i say i lack the resources to access it i'm afraid yeah well you hear that as well with paul's stuff as well and i think even the style council so you did on the um, our favorite shop album you did backing vocals on boy who cried wolf right and but there were alternative versions of that with you on as well weren't yeah. there that are somewhere hidden somewhere in the vault somewhere there is one that includes most of the vocals that i did or certainly more than were of the singles with a, a guy called noel mccullough did a version and it was included on a, a not for sale cd that EMI released to showcase Paul's oh. songwriting. Okay. Um, and it's called something like the songs of Paul Weller and then the dates. It's got my version of Spring, Summer, Autumn on it, which was incredibly flattering, but also an alternative version of The Boy Who Cried Wolf with this guy Noel McCalla singing the lead vocals. And actually a lot more of the vocal parts I did on that are on there. And I love that. I love singing that song. It's great. And I, I really love the, the sound. I've, I always like the sound of mine and Paul's voices together. I wish we'd got it, got to do it a bit more, really. And when that album didn't get released, that second album, did you step away from music at that point then? Because it was, um, you mentioned the gig in 2009, but there weren't many live performances from you after that point, were there? No, I did one gig in 1986 at the Camden Palace, which quite a big one we got the brass section in and all of that did, did the whole shebang and then there was a lady at Polydor who'd been in the press office there who I'd met through Paul and, and done a lot of work with and she worked with Respond as well when it was going through A&M because she moved to A&M her name was Chrissy Cremore and I'd known her such a long time and I said look I've got all this work that I haven't released, I kind of need a manager. So she agreed to manage me. She was really lovely and she tried her best, but I think holding down a full-time job and trying to deal with me at the same time is too much. So she dropped out quite soon after. But I don't know if you've ever seen, it's on YouTube now, there's a video for me and Jimmy Stone. No, I've not seen that, no. The songwriter paid for it, a guy called Paul Fitzgerald. He actually paid for that video to be made and we put together a little package to take around record companies with that video and a CD with a couple of the demo songs on plus No Smoke Without Fire which was a song that I was really really big on that that was for me was one of the really strong tracks on that album and then I think we only went to maybe one or two record companies and then Chrissy said I, I can't do it and I think I just sort of lost faith a bit after that my get up and go got up and went as they mm. say but then I went to see yeah okay I've got to be really careful here I'm telling you things that I've not spoken about before really I went to see a couple of people one of whom well, I suppose you'd call them both agents, really, just to get some advice 
what what can I do? Which way can I go? And both of whom sort of steered me down the presentation path, which weirdly is where I kind of went to later. But I had done a bit of TV presenting at that time. And they both said, well, why don't you go down this route? One of them then, let's say one of them was more proactive than the other and took me to some events and made some phone calls and had some meetings and spoke to me about an idea with Michael Hull that he'd already put into production about a TV show that I would do. It was like, it was like a, a kind of a chat show and would have bands on as well. And that would make me a sort of a serious presenter around music, but would allow me to also sing with these artists as well. This They had this whole show planned out. I have to emphasize, I personally never had a conversation with Michael Hull, but this was the pitch that was put to me making me nervous just I've never told this to anybody before which is why I'm not giving names but let's just say there was uh there was an incident uh that was very much in keeping with the me too movement um and at that point that was when I walked away I I just felt like yeah all roads all roads were closed off to me that particular path I had no recourse I felt like I had no route back into the industry if I was to tell anybody um, and that probably pathways were closed. So, yes, I did. I kind of walked away. And then I started doing some demos with a couple of writers from Essex. When the second album was released, so there's two tracks on it that I did with these two guys from Essex, Phil Quire, and I forget the other name, the other guy's names, but it was released on a label called Quire Records, just self independent thing there's a track called baby come back just kind of an 80s dance thing late 80s dance thing and that's decent quality and then there is another track which is a demo and it's really ropey quality because it was an enhanced version of a cassette a really really old cassette and i co-wrote that song with him and again it's one of the favorite things i've ever written and ever recorded i loved it um and i'd love that song to have been done by somebody else i can think of lots of people who would have done amazing versions of that song and that's what i was doing i was just sort of putting feelers out and starting to feel confident enough again to sing with people when i met my husband so i just went no do you know what i sort it all and i went off and got married and moved to solly hole and had a baby and that was it. And I kind of forgot all about everything. I just put it all behind me until the late 90s. And then I moved back to Essex and I had no hankering to sing again. But I started to think about radio as a route in which to fulfill my love of music, and my passion for music without actually having to do it or getting into any of the mucky stuff myself. Well, you got uh, to live the dream as well. You got to live the one that I grew up listening to. So I was born in Bounceldon, listening to Essex Radio. You spent like 20 years in, in presenting in radio. Was that right? Yes, I did. All in Essex as well, but nearly yeah. all at different stations. So Essex FM was my first gig. I was the producer and the co-presenter of the, the best 80s show in the world ever. And from there, I went and did the traffic and travel. And from doing the traffic and travel, I got my own show, started out as a weekend show. And from there, I went on to have my own breakfast show. And it stayed that way until 2018. And I just walked away from radio and moved. It was during my time in radio. I don't think it wasn't connected, but during my time in radio that I did that gig with Billy. And... Yeah, it, it all kind of came full circle. And I feel pr I feel pretty happy with the fact that I got to do a decent version of Give It Some Emotion, one of which is on tape, <laughs> not just at the gig. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. just at the gig at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, but was actually recorded in the Radio Essex studios and is on the second CD. I've had an opportunity to just settle a lot of accounts, if you like. Well, you probably caught that radio bug, which is which gets to a lot of us, I have to say, it was much the same. Oh. I've got some questions from the fans, which I have to do before. 
before we wrap up as well, because I'm, I'm so aware <laughs> I've taken so much of your time. So this, is, fine, from, this is from King Truman on Twitter. Is she allowed to mention Paul Young now? Well, <laughs> well, I never liked Tracy talking in the press about how much she liked him. <laughs> I don't. Do you remember this? That's not true. I saw that. I saw that on Twitter the other day. That's actually not true. I'll tell you something that is. I think he didn't understand it. He didn't understand my fascination with, he didn't understand a lot of things. It wasn't Paul Young, don't forget. It was the Q-tips, not Paul Young's solo. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so yeah, this is different. Yeah. Paul Young's solo career didn't take off until well after the house that Jack built. So don't let me drift off the question here. But as a little <laughs> aside, which I've mentioned before, I remember Paul's face looking at me like I was from another planet when I happened to mention that I like the Eagles one day. You had to be careful what you mentioned around Paul. You know, if it wasn't cool, I could kind of make him look at you in a way that questioned your very being you know it wasn't I didn't really care it could wither you with a kind of a you know a look and a why you know why <laughs> um don't care I still like a lot of the stuff the Eagles did they were just albums that my mum had so I was really familiar with the Eagles and some of it's good I like the Eagles yeah, I think I don't think there's meant to be other I think no there's, there's no other you're right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but anyway coming back to the Paul Young thing I honestly I don't think he ever did I don't think he ever told. I, I think he was puzzled. He didn't really get it. I think a lot of people saw the Q-tips more of, not a lot of people, some people saw them as more of a pastiche. But no, I think they were a great live soul act and the energy was amazing. And Paul Young was hot. Why would I not be going on about him? Aside from John McEnroe, who to this day, might not for whom my, my love has not faded. You know, it's not the same with Paul Young now, but as time's gone on, all these years later, since I was 15 years old, I still love John McEnroe with every fibre of my being and would drop everything in a heartbeat for him. But um, Paul Young, it, <laughs> it was a thing at the time. It was, it was, I was young. That's how we are. I will tell you this. This is absolutely true. I had a boyfriend at the time. When I first met Paul, I was 17. I had a boyfriend who... I was with when I was in Essex. And then, of course, as I said, I'd moved to Terraford. So that was another reason why I was really excited whenever I went back to Essex or to London for a gig, as I did on that night, I sent the tape. And he was probably my, sort of my first serious boyfriend. And Paul did actually say to me, probably not a good idea to talk about having a boyfriend in the present. When you think about it now, it's kind of scandalous, really. That is, <laughs> you know, if somebody did that now, you'd really want to keep that quiet. You you wouldn't want to be on record as having said that to your yeah. protégé. Yeah. You know, don't talk about having a boyfriend. Yeah, but that was so common, even like the boy bands and the girl bands in the 90s. It was the same thing. It was like, you know, well, don't mention that you're in a relationship with anyone, that mm. kind of thing, because, you know, you need to, you need to yeah. be seen as attainable. I guess for the fans I don't know what it is Weird. that's exactly what it is yeah. yeah he said you just you just don't want people to have any reason to not take an interest in you sort of thing yeah. and yeah. talking about a boyfriend can make you seem unattainable so try not to talk about your boyfriend as it happens we split up soon after <laughs> so it wasn't an issue but wow Miss Weller so non-PC hey <laughs> um, Beth Lawrence said I saw her at the Marquee in London a few weeks later at the Ritz in New York City circa 1985 brilliant gigs that ring a bell well, not me in Beth but those gigs I remember playing the marquee that was an amazing night absolutely incredible a big thing for me because it was where I'd seen my first ever gig and it, I am talking the original Wardour Street marquee uh, we finished with I Can't Leave You Alone as we always did and it was amazing and I can remember coming off stage going, taking my top off and ringing it out because we were so hot and we'd all had such a great night it was amazing that, that's not very ladylike is it but, <laughs> you know, it's very rock and roll though you know yeah, it's really 
absolutely rock and roll. It's, um, it's, yeah, it sounds lovely. Um, there was a couple of people who mentioned actually them, you being like your first, their first gig being you. Yeah, Stu Wilkinson, his first concert, Canterbury Art College, 1983. There were you, The Questions, Paul Weller and John Weller turned up as well. Vaughan was DJing that you mentioned. Big memories, obviously. Yeah, Vaughan had a song that he used to play for me. So we, one of the days we'd been on tour quite early on in the Respond tours, we'd been out shopping and I'd bought a 12 inch of Mighty Hands of Love by Animal Nightlife and Vaughan used to play that for me every night before I came on stage so that was my song to stand in the wings and kind of warm up to and get in the mood Mighty Hands of Love by Animal Nightlife going back to um, Beth's question about the Brits in New York yeah we only did four gigs in America one of which was cancelled and that was Washington yeah I remember the Brits very small nice little gig though it was good yeah. yeah, and this was you and the Soul Squad, was it then? Yeah, that was just us. It wasn't a response thing. It was just a Tracy tour. That was Paul's name. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> later, much later, they were called Tracy and the Sunshine Girls. That was me. <laughs> but, but the Soul Squad was Paul. Cool. Right, a couple of other things I need to ask you before you go. So actually, DJ Moon on a Stick said, did she enjoy her time running the bowling green, bowlers, the pub in Hereford. Do you know what? I really enjoyed that. So when I got married, that was something that my husband, my ex-husband and I had always thought that we would do when we were older, run a pub. And I, I always fancied running a nice pub with lots of entertainment and live music. And then because my husband was a builder and we got married in 1990 around the time of the recession. So actually his work got hit quite hard. So we went into the pub trade quite a bit earlier than we expected. And we took on this pub called the Bowling Green in Hereford. The reason we were in Hereford was because we had a baby and we went off on three months training. And my mum, who lived in in Hereford looked after my daughter and then while we were training in Hereford this pub became available Bowling Green so we took it over and it was only a tiny little pub and it had previously been a biker pub that's where all the bikers used to hang out I'm very pleased to say we turned it around in a couple of years we made it really profitable through food but also live music and entertainment so while my husband's pride and joy was the beer and the cellar and everything he was into his real ales and stuff my passion was about the entertainment and we did in this tiny little pub we had music I used to do these uh, really good pop quizzes they were really a big event as well once a month these pop quizzes where I painstakingly again just with a little home stereo used to edit all these clips of music together so there was always music for every question and this was before computers and digital editing and audition and that sort of thing where you could just get the waveform and edit it lovely this was just done recording little bits pause play another bit record pause you know but yeah it was a passion of mine and i did enjoy it thank you very much i did enjoy it a lot that's a great question there's another one on Stu wilkinson also mentioned if given the choice of singing any one of paul weller's songs what would you choose and he said by the way i look like her (laughs) ex-husband I saw it. You met Stu, right? (laughs) I met, yes, we met at that weekend where I met you. And this was really spooky. I'm just going to talk about that briefly before the song. So I came down. I was looking for a friend who was late arriving and had promised to meet me there. And I'd come down. There were loads of people there. And I was trying to get out to find my friend. And there were loads of people waiting for signings, you know, things to be signed and have pictures and everything. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And every time I looked up, there were more people. I didn't get to catch up with my friend. At one point, I looked up. I think I may have turned and signed something, turned to do a picture. And I saw this guy and I did a double take. And I thought, oh my God, that's Steve, my ex-husband. <laughs> who I why don't does, why does he want an autograph? <laughs> I know, he was just sort of stood in the queue. And I, I did a double take. I had a stroke a couple of years ago. 
And I do have a, a little blind spot in both eyes as a result. I always have to shift my vision to the left when I'm not sure of what I'm seeing. And I looked and I thought, oh, my God, it is him. And I didn't want to stare. So I was doing these furtive little glances to the left. And I don't see my ex-husband very often. We're not on the best of terms, it has to be said. So but this did look kind of like how I imagined he would look since I'd last seen him maybe five, six years ago. And every time I looked up to do a photo with somebody else, this guy's getting closer and I'm thinking, oh my God, what's he doing here? <laughs> what's he going to say? Anyway, it wasn't him. It was stupid. <laughs> well, no, but when he finally approached me and, and spoke to me, I said, oh, my God, you look so much like my, ex- my ex-husband. It's really freaky. And then I, I remember talking to him a lot that day. He came up a couple of times and said, have you got over here? I know you still look. And then he would turn away. I'd go, stay at that angle. You don't look so much like him from that angle. It's really weird. Yeah, what was the question anyway? Uh, the oh, question. The get, get, yeah, which, which, if you could pick one of Weller's songs, what would, you, what would you say? Oh, man, I don't know. There are so many good ones. Oh, I should have thought about this because I did see him write this on Twitter. And, oh, man, there's so many so many do you know what i'm gonna say let me think about it and when you post that you're ready to you, that the podcast is ready i'll add an answer how's All right. that that's a good Twitter. one that's a good i'll, one. I'll have to go away and think about it i wouldn't like to just say something for the sake of it there are so many i should ask you about john weller actually that's one thing i meant to ask you about because john was um played like a managerial role at times and um was presumably pretty supportive all the way through and helps and stuff what what's your memories of the weller family it was lovely seeing you the other week at the star council thing and you and nikki kind of bumping into each other and saying hello after yeah. all those years and stuff but the weller family meant means that means a lot obviously to the to the whole crew always john was my manager yeah just a lovely lovely warm person do you know the funny thing is nikki said is it all right I just swear on this. Yeah, yeah, go I know I've, I've used some mild swear words, but this could this could get a bit larry here. So Nikki Nikki said to me the other week when we were all together, it's the first time I've seen Nikki in a while. She said to me, "You sound a lot posher than I remember." She said, "Did is that because of radio?" And I said, "Partly." I said, "It's it wasn't a conscious effort." I said, "It it's been a number of things." I said, "Partly living in different geographical areas around the country, kind of refining how I speak." But honestly, if I'm truthful, a lot of it comes from not just going back and back in this. I said, and that's from not being around your your brother and your father, <laughs> 24 seven, because it just does. I soak up other people's accents really quickly. I do. I, I just always have done. I absorb other people's accents very quickly and start to mimic them without realizing. And I realized that I, be, I became, when I hear back, recordings of me talking or I watch old TV things and I hear me talking I'm like how is that me and then I remember that I was hanging around with these guys from Woking Kenny Wheeler and Dave Little and all these people 24-7 every other word was fuck you know pronounced fuck (laughs) when I was on the breakfast show at Essex FM I was known as the posh one there was Martin proper Essex bloke there was Sue a girl from Leicester and there was me and I was the posh one. I mean, I'm not posh. I was talking like I am now. Not posh particularly. But yeah, since I stopped hanging around with the wallets, <laughs> I've become so a little more refined. I'm not absorbing that accent all the time. But yeah, I love John. John was brilliant. I went to his funeral. I'd seen him. 
a couple of years before at the Albert Hall, I'd been to something. Him and the whole family, you know, Anne and Paul were all like, you know, where's your daughter? But they, they were so desperate to meet my kids um, and I hadn't brought them. And John almost immediately ripped open his shirt to show me his operation scar, you know. I don't want this to be taken as a negative in any way. Obviously, family came first, but that extended family was always still very important to them and to those that were part of it as well. Yeah. And presumably yeah. you got paid out of the briefcase of cash that you carried around everywhere you went, right? <laughs> Not as often as I should have done. <laughs> the PDs were always good. Yes. I love PD day on those European tours and stuff. You talked about musical snobbery. Wasn't there an element at one point where you were going to be entered in for the first step of Eurovision? So it's Song for Europe, I think, wasn't it? But John Weller was up for it. And Paul Weller was like, whoa, no way. Was that right? <laughs> okay. I should preface this by saying that I'm a massive Eurovision fan and I always have been. However, even I knew that that'd be a really tough move. Even as a big Eurovision fan, I knew that doing it would be career suicide at that time. But yeah, there was a guy, Eamon somebody or other, I can't remember his surname, but he used to use Solid Bond. He was a jingle writer and he wrote, a song for Eurovision. I can't remember how the song, I couldn't tell you how the song went now, but there was a demo with Kate Robbins singing it. He'd approached John and said, would Tracy be interested in recording this and submitting it to the song for Europe? And John, I, I can hear him to this day, think about it, babe. Millions of people all around the world be fucking amazing. Fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that, look, I love Eurovision. I said, I don't think it'll be a good idea, honestly. I said, but why don't you run it past Paul <laughs> and then tell me what Paul said? <laughs> uh, needless to say, it went nowhere. But I can still hear him to this day. Millions of people all around the fucking world. It'd be fucking amazing. <laughs> it's still fucking millions of records, babe. <laughs> Talking of millions of records, actually, the first Star Council single was Speak Like a Child. You're their honorary counsellor with you and Zeke Manjikab. Zeke's been on the podcast as well. This is a massive single, sold like you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. And you got a disc from Polydor, didn't you? At one point, there's a kind of congratulations I did, thing. Yeah. Yeah? I got yeah. a silver disc, yeah. Yeah. But tell me about the, the trips to the Malvern Hills with the Weller family and and the, the filming of the video for that, because you were part of the whole crew then as well, weren't you? Yeah. So um, of the Mulvins, funnily enough, not very far from Hereford, where I was yeah. living with my mum at the time. So it didn't take me long to get there. And we stayed in a lovely hotel called The Cottage in the Wood. It was just lovely. I mean, it was freezing cold. The filming was not fun. It was my first ever experience of making a music video. It was so cold. It just wasn't fun. But there was fun within it, obviously. I was still getting to know Paul and his sense of humour around that time. Nikki was there. There were a whole bunch of other people. There was a girl called Louise. Can't remember who else now. Dennis was there, Dennis Monday. So yeah, we had some fun in the hotel after filming. It was a laugh. <laughs> it was good fun. Um, I don't have the silver disc anymore. I auctioned it. I did a, a Land's End to John O'Groats bike ride 2007, I think it was. And that was uh, for Little Haven's Children's Hospice in Essex, which is my favourite charity. Me and my friend at the time, just on our own efforts, no publicity or anything. Uh, we raised seven and a half thousand for doing it. Deserved, trust me, deserved a lot more. With a bit of publicity, we'd have got more because it was the worst experience of my entire life. <laughs> I do that speak like I would have given birth every day for 14 days or done that speak like a child video outside every day for 14 days rather than that bike ride. But we did it. One of the ways I was trying to bump up the donations, the I auctioned. The, hang on, the dog's whining. I'm just going to let her out. <laughs> come on, you. Come on. Um, and the 
gentleman that bought it, really nice fella who was a big, big Paul Weller fan and his wife had recently died, only a young guy. He, uh, yeah, he bought it. So it was, it was perfect. It couldn't have gone to a nicer person. Um, and I took it round to his house when we got, when we got back off the bike ride, my friend Sally, I did the bike ride with, she had a massive party at her house and I took the silver disc round to, the guy's house that had got the winning bid and met him and his children and spent the afternoon with them and then he came to the party the end of bike ride party as well that night so yeah it was all perfect there are two final questions which are always the same final questions at the end of this podcast number one is you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or solo what are you going to go with my ever-changing moods Uh no question no other song my ever-changing moods full band single version yeah and when I used to do the AC show I used to force myself to play other jam or style council songs, but it was only because I was counting the weeks until I could play my ever-changing moods again. Always my ever-changing moods. It's, I, there's, there's nothing more uplifting, is there? Oh, it's a great tune. Great, great yeah. tune, isn't it? And when they would do those songs on tour, would you? where would you what? Would you go and watch the rest Outfront. of the band? Did you? Outfront. Always Outfront, yeah. Always, always used to watch them. Whenever I was on tour, I never missed a set. Every single night I was out front watching. Loved it. Uh, My final question. So the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself, but it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? Is there a question you think I should put it in? Oh, wow. I don't want to make you jealous, but I did get an interview with him in my radio career. Fuck it out. (laughs) the week before that Shepherd's Bush gig that I did because he was playing Shepherd's Bush Empire oh. and I did an interview with him there. So I went along with the little handheld kit and I interviewed him. So it was face to face. Yeah. What did I ask him? We talked a lot about um, sampling and, you know, how back in the jam days, you know, he'd been accused of ripping off certain things and he, he talked about it as live sampling. He said, you know, there wasn't any sampling in those days. He said, but I like to think of it as live sampling. It's not a rip off. It, it's just incorporating another artist's work as a, as a way of, you know, almost as uh, flattering and including it as inspiration rather mm. than it being a rip off. For example, the whole star tax man thing. So, yeah, we talked about that. We talked. Oh, God, I can't remember. It's such a long time ago. Do you know what? I made a little promo. I've probably still got it somewhere with some little excerpts of it. If I find it, I'll remember. Yeah, do. We'll put it in. We'll put it in yeah. the podcast. That'd be cool. Yeah. He met my son at the uh, Somerset House exhibition a few years ago and I can't remember if he did he ever meet my daughter I can't remember I've introduced from the jam on stage as well as part of my radio career yeah all these things it's weird there's a kind of the way everything comes around and kind of interconnects somehow yeah. but yeah what would you ask Paul Weller I don't know what what would you what have you well, always any, most it, wanted it, to know well, lots of things, and I'm writing a list, and I keep playing this whole thing over in my head every night when I have a little dream, and we, it's either gone really well or terrible, <laughs> depending on the, ang- the levels of anxiety at the time, I imagine. Oh, really? But, um, yeah, yeah, because you know, sometimes it's an absolute car crash, and he's a moody old bugger and doesn't want to answer any questions. This is not in real life. This is in my dream, you know. Other time, it goes brilliantly. It's lasting for hours, and we're, you know, we're at Black Barn, and it's going fabulously well, so who knows? It sounds like, from your point of view, it sounds like he's uh, misrepresented in the press where, you know, everybody said it was terrible to interview and a moody old bugger. Actually, a lot of fun at times as well right i imagine he probably was at times quite moody and quite you know certainly he um i can remember all right oh this is gonna sound terrible now right i don't care i'm just gonna go for it (laughs) so i do get very frustrated some on some days because i can be a moody bugger as well when certain things to do with paul weller monopolize my entire social media feeds those are the things that are being fed into and i'm like oh really sometimes it's really good stuff and i'm interested in it but 
half the time it's like, oh God, you know, on a day when he releases a new record, you'd, you'd think the cure for cancer had been found. Honestly, it's like, really? This is a good thing though. This leads into a very positive thing. I know, I know. <laughs> so this, but this leads into a very positive thing. So do you remember him co-writing a song with Ollie Murs? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've actually interviewed Ollie Murs a couple of times. Um, and one of the times was when that album came out and I spoke to him about this. But just before the album came out, there was a press release or an article that made it very well known, blah, blah, blah. You should have seen my, my social media feeds that day, Facebook in particular. It was like the world had ended. Honest to God, are these grown men all lamenting that Paul had lowered himself you know, the world had ended because, you know, not just was Ollie Murs not worthy, but he'd come via the X Factor. Honestly, it was just appalling. But the um, immense snobbery that still exists, I really took exception and wrote quite a scathing post that morning, you know, about people getting over themselves. And actually, come on, is it not a good thing that Paul is really open? Because I've always been quite um, played along with it in the day when it was Duran Duran and stuff and it was a laugh. And blah blah and I wasn't particularly a Duran Duran fan but as the years have gone on and Paul's mellowed and changed and from the man who said I don't want to be the aging old rock star playing it out till it's embarrassing and and there he is it's not embarrassing he's still doing it and it's not embarrassing you know my point that I was trying to make that day when I got very angry with all these posters on Facebook was do you not think this is a really really positive thing that Paul's open to new ideas he's listening to things he's embracing new things and he is sharing his talent with other people you know why would you not be willing to embrace that and be happy about it hey look this has been so lovely tracy i've loved every second of this i really really appreciate you spending the last couple of hours with me chatting about all this stuff oh has it been that long wow and there's still stuff i haven't asked you about but this has been so lovely thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it mate you're welcome i've enjoyed it well that was a real blast my thanks once again to the brilliant tracy young for joining me on the podcast an absolute pleasure to spend time in her company and yes i have now emailed ollie mers to join me on the podcast too if you've enjoyed this episode please do give us a follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love it if you could give us a five-star review as well. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can also hit the share button when you finish listening to put it on your social media channels and help to spread the word. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod, or you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. And if you fancy it, buy me a virtual coffee on my website where you'll find loads more information about my conversation with Tracy and her career to date. Just go to paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.